So I think we're about ready to reconvene. So I'm going to start the second lecture uh, by focusing on the intellect and the will. The second lecture is called Natural Human Inclinations and Spiritual Flourishing, Intellect and Will. Now, in the first lecture, you have this handout, which I, know, of course, never referred to. I have these underlined portions just trying to show you how Aquinas looks at the powers of the soul in light of the operations as oriented towards objects or ends, and that he thinks there's threefold hierarchy of vegetative, sensate, and intellectual powers. Then there's a line, and below that you have uh, Summa Theologiae 1, question 12, article 1. I might read some from this, this uh, in this hour, uh, section. So, where, what am I, you know, there's so much you can do in looking at the intellect and the will in Aquinas and in light of human experience. But what I want to do is here give a very big picture of the inclination of the will towards truth and the inclination of the heart or the volitional free will toward love of the good. And then I want to think <clears throat> at the end of this lecture, this half hour or so, about the natural law what's called the natural law. Now, I would bet if I just say natural law and you think about it, you think about something like a moral geometry. There's like a God, the moral geometer, and he's putting certain laws and axioms down in your mind, and then you have to kind of know them and follow them. And this seems very unrealistic and uh, maybe unhelpful. But actually, Aquinas thinks natural law uh, goes back to things like nutrition and sensate life and the desire to know the truth. Fundamentally, natural laws for Aquinas are ways we talk about precepts of reason uh, that acknowledge natural inclinations. So human beings are naturally inclined, he says, and we'll read this later, to fall in love, to have children, and to love their offspring, who they seek to educate and protect. That's a natural inclination. And so there's like natural laws that follow from that, which are things like, you know, you should be able to protect the human life of your child. You have an obligation as a parent to nurture your child and nourish it, to treat the child with emotional responsibility and love, and to educate the child. And the child has certain natural rights to be educated, loved, nurtured, nourished, and so forth. So it's very commonsensical. Natural laws, as we articulate them as precepts of moral reasoning, emerge from attentiveness to natural inclinations. Like, I have the natural inclination to want to know the truth and not to want to be lied to. No one likes to be deceived. So it would be strange if we were in a business together and you were habitually telling me things that were untrue about how much money you were paying me or how much money I was paying you or what our commercial relations are. That would seem to be what we could call an injustice because there's a natural inclination to trust other people when they communicate what is normally considered a truth to one another. Okay, so the point is this idea of natural law, we need to demystify it a little bit. We're, we're looking at something like natural inclinations. So what's specific to the intellect and to the will, unlike the sensate life, is that they have universal inclinations. 
So what is my sight oriented towards? All that's visible. So it's nice to send telescopes up into the universe and send back pictures so that we can have visual information that's more extensive about the physical cosmos. But no matter how many satellites we send up, your eyes will never hear anything. And if you lose your capacity to hear, seeing won't, remove, won't, won't provide audible knowledge. Your audition, your capacity to audibly hear things is limited to what's in the realm of sound. You'll never be able to hear colors. You might imagine colors when you hear Mozart versus Beethoven, but that's because of the sensate phantasms of the imagination. Right? So the senses have limited spectrums of objects. The intellect doesn't. The intellect can know everything that is. What is the intellect interested in? Everything that exists. Whether you hear it or see it, no matter what its species or kind is, no matter what its properties are, the intellect gets into everything. It has that universal horizon of interest. And so Aquinas says the first proper object of the intellect most generally is ens qua ens in Latin, being qua being. And in the being of things, and beings are multiple, we see something of their truth, their nature, their essences, their causes, their unity and multiplicity, their goodness, or their lack of goodness. So these are called the transcendental notions, uh, being, truth, unity, or multiplicity, uh, goodness, and also essence, or res, he says in Latin, thing thingness, meaning the essence or intelligibility of a thing. So our mind, through the senses, is always already out in the field of being, the world of being, and it's noticing multiple beings. That's why Aquinas says the first principle of speculative reason, which you cannot fail to have, is the knowledge that, of the principle of non-contradiction, that one thing is not identical with another thing, because we apprehend diverse beings. We know right now in this room there are many things. You just do know it intellectually. And then you know one thing is not another thing, or that things have different qualities and quantities and properties that you already kind of know something about. And then the categorical modes of being, substance and properties like qualities, quantities, relations, habits, place, time, position, so forth, these are Aristotelian enunciations of the folds of being, or the manifold way of, in which things exist. That's the study of metaphysics, and if you've never studied it, it's fine. The point is you experience a horizon and you're out in the horizon of the world, many things with natures and properties. You just do know that. And then you can start to think about their causes. This opens up a most universal question about a universal cause of being. So not only is the intellect interested in all that exists, not only sounds or not only sights, but all the objects of sound and sight, all the realities insofar as they exist, have unity, have natures, have properties, their causes. But then it can get into the, the very most general question in a way, the most universal question, of a total cause of all that exists. Does everything that exists insofar as it exists receive its being from another? Surely you and I didn't always exist. And we are not the cause, I am not the cause at least, of everything that exists. I don't think either, any of you are. And I don't think anything else I've ever experienced is the cause of everything that exists. And furthermore, everything that we experience that exists seems to come into being and go out of being or to be caused in its being. So is that all there is? 
are beings that are caused in the whole universal world of being? Or is there also something causing all things to be that are, insofar as they are? And that is the universal horizon of questioning that leads you to the question of creation or of God, what we call God in philosophy, you could call the primary cause or something underived, giving existence actually to all that exists. Now Aquinas thinks the intellect isn't actually fully satisfied in its natural capacity for question asking and explanation unless it begins to broach that most ultimate of questions. In other words, the dynamism of the human intellect that reaches out into a wholeness field of being is naturally open to the question of the most universal horizon of causality of all that exists. And in a way, the intellect is inclined to the question of the truth about being in such a way that until the intellect opens to the question of the transcendence of God, the intellect cannot fully become itself. Now, we live in a culture where it would be strange to say people are rationally immature because they've never intellectually considered the question of God's existence. But Aquinas does believe that's true about our human nature, that there's something, even if you're a religious person in faith and you believe God exists, qua natural reality, qua rational animal, qua philosophical animal, if you can't ask the question of God's existence as the universal giver of being in a philosophical way, you're intellectually stunted, even if you're a believer. And it won't make up for it that you just believe a lot more or you've got a lot more grace. Something in you naturally is deprived of its own fulfillment. Your intellect hasn't flowered. You're like a plant of the mind. Like a plant, your mind is like a plant that's never opened and put out flowers. You've never reached the maturity of the rational animal. It's an interesting challenge to us as modern people to think about whether that could be true. Could a truth that important have been forgotten by modernity, the age in which we produced nuclear bombs and gas chambers? It's a rhetorically posed question, if you put it that way. Maybe we've discovered many things and forgotten others. In any case, if you look at the first quotation that I have in the second section, he says, whether any created intellect can see the essence of God. Now, this is a theologian asking the question, of what Christians call the beatific vision, whether God can give a grace to the mind eventually in the world we call heaven, in the beatitude of heaven, of the soul separated from the body is given the grace of beatitude or the vision of God. Can God elevate the human mind to where we could see God face to face or see the essence of God? And the, the, the objections could be from philosophers. No, I don't want heaven. It would be unnatural. I should never see God face to face by grace because it would do violence to my human nature, which isn't meant to know God in that way. And he says, I mean, he gives arguments from theological reasons of revelation, but then at the end, in the underlined portion, he says, the opinion is against reason to say that beatification would be violent to the intellect. Seeing God face to face by grace would be violent to human reason. For there resides in every man a natural desire to know the cause of any effect which he sees. And thence arises wonder in men. Huh? You see, the, if, you're, if you've never experienced electricity and then someone shows you electricity coming out of a socket and going into a light and turns a light on for the first time, 
if you came from a culture where there wasn't electricity and you saw it, you would be, it'd be wondrous and you would want to know where is the electricity coming from. You'd have to study Thomas Edison and all that. And then you'd understand. But if the intellect of the rational creature could not reach so far as the first cause of all things, the natural desire would remain void. Hence, it must be granted that the blessed see the essence of God. He's just adding a philosophical argument to a theological um, uh, consideration there about whether in Christianity we really posit that the blessed see the essence of God face to face, so to speak, by rational intuition of the very nature of God in himself. And he's saying it's, con it's consummate with human natural desire because the human being desires to know the cause of all things, that being the giver of existence who's giving us all being, the intellect can reach up that high. But if we can know that there is a cause of being and we can know we don't know that reality in itself because we don't know what God is, Aquinas thinks we don't know what God is, naturally speaking, we know that he exists, we know we don't know what he is, then we can naturally desire to see him as he is. But this is not possible for us by nature. Therefore, it's reasonable to receive the grace to see God face to face. It's an interesting way of thinking. You have a universal horizon of reflection about being. You can ask the question of the universal cause and giving the giver of being. You can know that there is a universal cause of being. You can know that you don't know what that universal cause of being is in itself. You can't know what God is. And you yet want to. So to know God in himself, you'd need something more than you can procure by your philosophical knowledge. And therefore, it's reasonable, if that grace exists, the grace of the knowledge of God, to be philosophically open to the possibility of divine revelation. And indeed, you could go further than Aquinas does and say, if you were to say that the grace of revelation is a priori uninteresting or unreasonable to be interested in, that would be, un that would be itself irrational. So the philosophical, for Aquinas at least, Philosophical closure against divine revelation is unreasonable behavior. Okay, what about the will? The will is also a faculty oriented towards the universal horizon. Why? Well, will follows knowledge. I can only love what I know. Have you ever met um, Andrew? Andrew is a spectacular person. If you meet Andrew, you're going to love Andrew. I can tell you, you should meet Andrew. He's the greatest person in the world. That's great. Where does Andrew live? Kazakhstan. Okay, let's go to Kazakhstan. Not easy to do this weekend. Okay, so I'm going to have to put off meeting Andrew and then having this amazing experience of acknowledging the greatness of Andrew until I can get to Kazakhstan. It's going to take some time. Okay. However, if I can know things, then I can love them, or I can admire them, or I can appreciate them in their place, in the hierarchy of being, right? So if the intellect is oriented to all that exists and can study all that exists, then it can, in principle, come to know, love, or appreciate the goodness of all that exists. So every human being we meet, if we're a little bit attuned in intellectual maturity, to reality, every human being we meet has a kind of unique spiritual richness, dignity, interestingness. Therefore, we can begin to love and appreciate and come to know every human being, even if some have a, a little bit more difficulty than others. 
or have weaknesses or um, vices that others don't. So the will is, an, is animated by the capacity to love what is first known, and we can know what is good, even what is most objectively good and perfect, and we can then begin to love naturally what's best and most perfect in reality. I didn't want to come to this lecture this weekend because I wanted to stay home with what would have been objectively a greater experience, which is my pet dog. I have a French bulldog. I would have stayed home with a French bulldog, which would have been a much greater spiritually enriching experience than teaching philosophy or listening to you talk about philosophy with me or having conversations about the truth. That's all very inadequate compared to being with the French bulldog. Now that's a fictional example. I don't have a French bulldog. In fact, it's not permitted to me to do so. But even if I did, if I inverted the hierarchy of being so as to think the French bulldog were more important than spiritual conversation about the truth of other persons, that would be a judgment of reason that's highly questionable. Because when the will goes out into the reality known, it begins to evaluate the range of um, values and things. So like I could be friends with someone uh, and like let's say two people could get married and be spiritually responsible for each other in friendship or I could spend all of my time drinking margaritas and I could just immerse myself in the experience of inebriation. Right? So you know you'd say well you shouldn't do that but how do you know? I mean it's actually a pretty interesting philosophical question. And the real way out to finding an answer has to do with this hierarchy of inclinations, to say that the sensate experience of inebriation from margarita is not the same uh, height of dignity as living according to reason and volitional love of interpersonal relations through virtue. So we can discover that we can love personal realities, namely ourselves and other persons, in a rightly ordered way, and loving ourselves has to do with figuring out something about the hierarchy of our being. Why do you exist? I exist to exercise. Okay, I, that sounds a little extreme. I mean, exercise has its role, temperate life in the body, but I also exist for friendship, for the truth, for prayer, for other activities, maybe for work. Right, so then we start getting the problem of what should we love in the many, in the many things we can love, human relationships, family life, work, intellectual, um, intellectual research, intellectual production, uh, religious search for the knowledge of God and the love of God, um, political life and society. How do we begin to organize these things? Aquinas thinks that the highest good is the one that has given being to all that is good, namely God. Now, here's a problem. We can know God is good for Aquinas metaphysically, because all that exists has some goodness to it, and some things that exist have higher goodness, like personal beings, but something behind everything is giving being to everything, and therefore must possess the heights of goodness, because it's giving being to the goodness of persons, and the goodness of nature, and the goodness of all that exists. And yet, that sovereign good is not immediately available to us. So now we're back to that paradox we saw before. We can know that God exists for Aquinas, but we also know we don't know what God is, but it would be natural to want to know what God is, if we could by grace. Likewise, we can know that God is some kind of mysterious 
fire of goodness or hearth of goodness, giving off the warmth of goodness in the created order, or putting out the light of goodness into the world like a hidden sun burning with goodness, but we don't see it directly or grasp it in, in itself. But what if that, that fire of divine love could irradiate our heart directly? We could possess God in ourselves through grace. See? So the, the, the intellect is moving off into the universal horizon of, of truth about being. The will is moving out to the desire for the good. But neither of them can possess the unalloyed essence or source of all being and of all goodness that is hidden from us. Manifest enough in its effects of creation that we can know it's real, but hidden enough that we can't know it in itself, which gives us this strange desire to want something beyond what we can immediately sense or even what we can immediately know of the human race and of the cosmos and of the com community of human beings in the cosmos to want to go beyond into something giving being to human beings in the cosmos, an uncreated, underived truth and goodness, which we don't experience directly. Could we experience that reality directly? For example, if that reality became human, if that reality gave us the grace to know that reality in itself. Aquinas argues in um, question 109, article three of the Prima Secundae, uh, that in our fallen state, and Father Simon will talk more about this, in our fallen state, we cannot do all the natural good we would normally be able to do had we never fallen into the state we call the state, the fallen state after original sin. We can still seek the truth, and we can still seek to love and to be loved, and still seek the ultimate horizon of goodness, but we get confused as to what's most ultimate in the order of truth, and we certainly fail often to uh, arrange our loves well and to love what is most ultimately worthy of love. Now, Aquinas thinks it's natural to love God above all things because God is truly the greatest good that there is. He's not talking about the grace of charity. He's not talking about the Christian love of God by grace or the love of all human beings by charity in grace. He's talking about human nature, distinct from grace. He's saying our will is inclined to love what's objectively greatest in the order of good, the universal horizon of goodness, the universal cause of goodness. So we're naturally oriented towards loving God. But in our fallen state, we have contrary inclinations mysteriously to selfishness and to the love of the sensate good more than the love of the spiritual good and towards the love of the private good of ourselves over the public and common good, the collective good of the whole. And it doesn't mean the collective good means we should not love ourselves. We should love ourselves in a measured way in relation to the whole common good. And he thinks that ultimately should lead us by nature to love God above all things. But we fail in that without the healing effect of grace. The main thing I want to say right here is just that Aquinas interestingly thinks it's pretty important that both men and angels are naturally inclined to love God above all things because if not, the grace of loving God would be violent to us. If grace gave us the power, supernatural power, to love God above all things in charity, to have our hearts irradiated through knowledge and love of God that's a gift, through faith, hope, and charity, lifting us up out of ourselves supernaturally 
into knowledge and love of God. If that all happened and we weren't naturally disposed to love God at all in any way, then that grace would do violence to our nature. See, so the fact that we have a natural inclination to the universal truth and a natural inclination of the will to the greatest and highest of goods means that if grace is real and the grace of higher knowledge and love of God is possible through infused faith and infused hope and charity, transforming the intellect and will, those graces don't violate our nature, but rather elevate, they heal and elevate our nature so we can become our best selves and even, in fact, more ourselves under the effect of grace. I'll just finish by noting that Aquinas in question prima secundae, uh, question, sorry, in prima secundae question 94, article two, names five basic inclinations in us that are inalienable. Now I gave you the whole uh, article, so you can go away and read it more. But the underlined portion at the end, he lists five basic goods. This is a famous passage. Here Aquinas is identifying in light of the complex character of the human being as a rational animal and our openness to the universal truth and the universal good, five inalienable inclinations that obtain in any culture, any time, any place, any person, and cannot be extricated. So the, the, the prison camp guards in the gulag who are torturing you cannot but have inclinations to these basic goods. He's not saying they possess the fullness of human virtue, just that this stuff is so deep, you really cannot eradicate it in human culture. And I'm just gonna list them off. First, the basic inclination to preserve one's own existence. Human beings by inclination in both their sensate animal life and their intellectual voluntary life, the sensate powers and the spiritual powers of intellect and will have a natural inclination to want to preserve their own existence. People don't just walk out in front of the cars. Now, I know people can commit suicide, and that's a very serious business, and we probably all know people who've tried it and that kind of thing. But the thing is, that's, sec that's one of the reasons we know that that's a very problematic action is because we're all viscerally in touch with the basic inclination to want to preserve the goodness of our being in existence. And then the, the problem of voluntary suicide becomes an interesting and important philosophical problem, which I don't want to go into now because it's a, you know, it's, it's a kind of subset of this affirmation. Second, the basic inclination to life, not only to the basic good of nourishment, but to the transmission of life. And he talks about human beings naturally being inclined to couple, to have children, and to raise and educate their children. He said this is in concord mostly with our animal life, actually. He says, you know, it's a very, it's a very modest view in a way, uh, or it's a very animal uh, kind of grounding to human family life. That, yes, it's a spiritual act to, to marry another person and have children, but it's grounded in something, in our fundamental inclination to, to, um, to couple, to have children, and to educate the children in human tenderness and, and fondness for offspring. Then he talks about an inclination of reason, which is a basic, the basic good of the truth, wherein we, um, we desire to know the truth and to be told the truth and to seek the truth in, communi in communion, communal life with one another. 
And then he talks about the basic, well, my reading of it. Then he has the basic good of life in community, which is rational life with one another in ethical relations that respect and promote the good of fellow human beings. So even among people who have the most problematic moral relationships with their neighbors, uh, say in unjust warfare or you know, the prison camp labor, you always have some degree of sociability and appeal to virtue and justice as the grounds for human behavior. You can get warped or problematic and ideological appeals to justice, but you always have the idea that there are regulations of justice that govern the relations of human persons living in community who aim in friendship and fellowship at some form of common good. And lastly, he talks about the knowledge of God as ineradicable. That's more controversial and very interesting. And I think that Aquinas thinks you cannot, from human civilization, completely extinguish the natural desire for ultimate explanation. Human beings remain inextricably metaphysical animals. They're animals that ask ultimate metaphysical questions about the highest truth and the causes of being and about the highest goods and about the causes of beauty, as it were, and multiplicity in the world. So they remain metaphysically uh, curious creatures, at least potentially capable of religious orientation and religious explanation. They might work that out in all kinds of different religious uh, ways or non-religious ways, but they remain capable of fundamentally orienting themselves towards religious questions about being. So existence, life, the, the pursuit of the truth, life and community according to some forms of justice and virtue, and the orientation of the knowledge of God. He thinks these things are just properly basic, no matter how unhealthy a given society or an individual in society may become. Because the, the teleological inclinations of nature in the realm of intellect and will with the universal horizon to the good remain in us with the natural desire for knowledge of causes and explanations, natural desire for the good, to love and to be loved, and the appreciation of a hierarchy of goods, including persons being higher goods than other non-personal non realities, and the way we orchestrate life and community in our life as rational animals living in community with one another. Okay, so I'm gonna finish there. It's like a little introduction to nature in Aquinas. We'll take up after lunch with grace and grace in nature with Father Simon, uh, which will be the more complete you know, version of all this when he, he looks at it all in the, a higher perspective. But I'll, I'll open the, we're, we're doing fine on time. I'll open the floor for questions for about 10 or 15 minutes, if you have any. Yes, sir. What's the difference between the, the third uh, inclination and the fifth? Knowing God and knowing the truth. Yeah, I mean, he, he, this, so I have a, you know, I have an, I have a, um, an interpretation that's uh, arguable but not required from this text. He actually gives three, he basically divides things up in the text, strictly speaking, according to inclinations of being, inclinations of life, and inclinations of reason. This is according to the Neoplatonic triad, and the Neoplatonic triad is being life and uh, intellect um, as like specifications. So everything that is uh, has being. Some things that exist have life and some things that have life have intelligence. 
So the human being is not just a being, but it's a living being. And it's not just a living being, it's an intellectual living being. And because we have natural inclinations in accord with what we are by uh, derivation of that triad, we have moral inclinations or natural inclinations in accord with being life and truth. If you take it that way, you could just talk about three general inclinations, preservation of existence, transmission of life in f familial context, and then goods of reason. What I did is I split the goods of reason up by, which I mean, it's a way of reading this, uh, the natural inclination to know the truth, the natural inclination um, to live in society, and the natural inclination to um, know God. Now, he mentions all three in that passage, but he doesn't put them in that order or specify them that way. But what I'm saying is that you have uh, inclinations that are, you might say, within the imminent horizon that don't necessarily refer to God as the ultimate horizon of explanation, like the knowledge of the tr desire to know the truth, which is in every human being, desire to live somehow virtuously and justly in community with others, usually in virtue of friendship, which is in every human being. Every human being wants to know the truth. Every human being wants to love and be loved in some way, in a just, virtuous way. And then you have beyond that the ultimate horizon of, of explanation. So this is a way of reading this article. This article is highly commented on by many people and debated uh, as to its content. So I'm just you know, being very transparent about the fact that I have an interpretation. Yes. Um, you mentioned that seeing God face to face would be a natural and affect our human nature. But what about um, our spiritual nature? Uh, how, I mean, uh, as Christians, uh, in the flesh it's impossible and it will be unnatural, uh, but in after, in this case, death, how would this uh, affect what, what does uh, Tom, uh, St. Thomas uh, King says? Yeah, so Aquinas thinks that we can only see God face to face, or that's a metaphor from the Bible, face to face. We can only know the essence of God in himself because of supernatural grace. We can't get there by our natural powers. And in principle, it could be something that could exist in this life, but in reality, the way God grants the soul beatitude is typically after the separation of body and soul, uh, once the soul has been purified of sin and defect and inaugurate, initiated into the vision of God. However, uh, the faith, faith, hope, and charity in this life are already a preparation for the beatific vision. I mean, this is a weird thing, Aquinas, probably Simon will talk about this, but faith is already a kind of insight into God in himself. And knowledge of the Trinity, although obscure, is really knowledge of who God is in himself. So faith is the seed of vision. Faith leads to vision. The question he's posing here is, is our nature, does our nature and our natural inclination in any way anticipate that? Clearly, we can't like naturally see God the way you can naturally open your eyes and see sensate objects or naturally open your mind and consider the truths of a geometric proof or the, the merits of a philosophical argument. You can open your mind to this or that philosophical argument and examine it, try to figure out whether it's true that human beings have a spiritual soul or do they not, can we even know, etc. 
However, he does think there's a way in which the philosopher, qua philosopher, be Christian philosopher or non-Christian philosopher, can argue that it's natural to want to know God as well as possible, even if we only know God indirectly in this life as philosophers from his effects. If we can derive the, the, the if we can arrive at the conclusion that God exists, that there is a mysterious numinous source and ground of all existence we call God the creator, if this is the reality, it's natural to want to know that reality as perfectly as possible. And so if Aristotle or Plato had arrived at that conclusion and St. Paul came up and said, hey, you know, you could actually see God face to face, would that philosopher want that grace would that grace seem interesting to that philosopher? And Aquinas is saying, yes, it, it should seem so. And you might say, in even us who, if we have the faith, are Christians, is it interesting philosophically to us that we could see God? And, Plato, and Aquinas is saying, yes, the philosopher in me, qua philosopher, abstracting from my faith but knowing it's real, can say, yeah, the faith is incredible, advanced for my nature. As philosopher, I can see that because it gives me something that no other philosopher, that I as a philosopher, no other philosopher as a philosopher can have, which is not just knowledge that God exists, but immediate knowledge of the God that exists, which is a higher reality. So he's trying to do a kind of reflection on the harmony of faith and reason to show they're concordant in one person. But even that that one person can think about it, both in light of his supernatural faith and his natural reason, and see the harmony of the two uh, without being in any way impious or disrespectful of the grace. Yes? Um, I, I'm not sure if what I heard, okay, I'm gonna re reframe the question. So, as we grow in virtue in this life regarding faith, hope, and charity, does that affect the way we see God in the eternal life? Well, this is a question for the next lecturer. However, uh, just to anticipate, uh, Aquinas thinks that the infused virtues of faith, hope, and love, which are not just natural to us, but gifts of supernatural knowledge and supernatural hope and love in the will of God, are dynamic virtues. So they can start off kind of like as seeds, and if you don't really exert them much, they're pretty weak or they're not very impressive, but if you create habits of faith, hope, and charity, if you exert them and live the sacramental and intellectual Christian life and practice Christian virtue and study God and study, to, to study the service of God and the love of God, yes, then they're dynamic and they're intensive and they can beatify the person more intensively in this life, making, meaning we can have a more happy Christian life in this life and then they can be out of us more in the life to come. And he actually thinks, this is weird, but he thinks the intensity of charity especially anticipates the intensity of beatification in vision. Oh yeah, definitely, yeah, definitely. Well, the degrees in heaven's in St. Paul, and then all the medievals comment on what the degrees in heaven mean. But basically the traditional answer is degrees of love, love. lead to degrees of knowledge. So that's weird because Aquinas typically thinks the more you know something, the more you can love it. But he thinks with regards to God,